Morning. Sounding good. Well, um, thank you for the time of worship. I'm certainly encouraged a lot of the themes and um, thoughts that I've drawn out of that, I'm sure, will be poignant this morning. Um, we're continuing our series and studies in the life of David. So we're going to uh, capture and, and learn from another glimpse um, of his life story. As with any great uh, biblical figure, uh, there's moments that I'm sure are well known to us if we've studied these things or read our Bibles and other elements that I have to say have a vague memory of when you read them or, or maybe even less than that. And I confess that this passage is one such occasion where I had to do a fair bit of reading just to put it into context and get to grips with some of the, the people and events that we look at. It's one of those that's maybe less, less well known. So just to refresh what's brought us up to this point in David's life so far. In chapter 16, we studied the anointing of David. Uh, this is this young boy is plucked from obscurity um, by the sovereign God, the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who reigns really over all of the events in our lives. And King Saul, who had been anointed by God for this role, had turned away. And we, we hear in uh, chapter 16 that he would have the kingdom taken from him. Really important in chapter 16 is that we were told that the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And in place of the spirit of God being with him, he's troubled by this distressing spirit in the chapters following. In chapter 17, we saw God glorified in David's triumph over Goliath. Again, this huge biblical picture of the sovereignty of God over impossible odds to achieve his purposes. And last time... In chapter 18, this is a couple of weeks back, we saw Jonathan, the son of Saul, make a covenant with David. These two young men are united in their desire to follow the Lord's will, in their mutual love for one another. And meanwhile, David continued to be a huge success and rose to a high rank in the military. And you may remember that Saul soon became quite jealous of David and the fame that David had, particularly that song of the women that David, while Saul had slain his thousands, David had slain his tens of thousands. That's not massaging Paul's ego, uh, sorry, not Paul, Saul's ego going into this passage. And soon in one of his distressing moments, uh, with this tormenting spirit, he hurled a spear at David more than once. But we've seen already the Lord's clearly with David, and we'll see that again today. We left it last time with David taking Michal. I'm taking uh, Paul's pronunciation of that as... Uh, as mine, and he took Saul's daughter as his wife. And sadly, we're told at the end of the passage that Saul's fear of David led him to remain an enemy for the rest of his days. That's a sort of a spoiler if I ever saw one going into the passage today. So this is where First Samuel 19 begins. Maybe we should pray before we read it and study these things. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to... Um, to study these words, Lord, things that you've recorded for us, that often are events in the Old Testament and, and things that we see that we maybe don't always understand at first, things that are difficult to get our head around, strange events, strange circumstances, Lord, but you were sovereignly reigning over all of them and I believe that you can speak to us practically in them today as well. So I pray, Lord, that you might prepare our hearts this morning to learn from the, the example of some of these people and certainly to see that you were sovereign over all these events, Lord, that we might... Uh, give you glory in our lives, Lord, and put our trust in you, as we've been singing already this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'd like to break down our passage into two pieces this morning, reading in two sections, and uh, drawing out the thoughts from one, then the other. In the first chunk, we'll consider what we can learn from the sort of events around this broken relationship between Saul and David, 
and the messy events surrounding it. So if you read with me verses 1 to 10 to begin with, it says this. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more war broke out, and David went and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. I'm going to stop there for now. There's a lot happening in our passage already, and that's only the half of it. But what I find fascinating about all of these events as I'm studying them is just how real these people and their motives are. The sort of vividness of the history, I think, leaps off the page, and we consider that as we consider the lessons that we can learn from them. You can see how these individual people, Saul, David, and Jonathan, their different desires and their motives are intertwining. And you can understand sort of the way they behave. It's the very raw, the emotions. Uh, it's very real, and it's certainly very messy. But in a short summary of that, we see Saul calling for his son and his attendants to kill David, such as the brokenness of that relationship. David's warned by Jonathan, who honors the covenant he made in the last chapter. We had Jonathan speaking well to Saul and reminding him of the great deeds David had done. Saul briefly uh, relents and is restored to David before that tormenting spirit comes again and he, he tries to murder him personally with a spear. But in the midst of this terrible, broken situation between Saul and David, what, what can we really learn from these things? I'd like to focus on Jonathan this morning in this particular chunk because I think his, uh, his actions really come to the fore. He is a man who's put in a very complex ethical situation, living with these conflicting obligations in his life. How does he go about doing what is right? And before I kind of think about that, maybe just to consider your own circumstances at the minute, we all find ourselves with complex situations in our lives, I'm sure, all the time, trying to work out what's the right thing to do. Consider the places you live and work for a moment, and, and maybe I'll give some examples that you may find yourself in. Maybe you've found yourself in a workplace where they're, they're putting on a day to celebrate a cause that you personally can't support because you know that it goes against the word of God. Perhaps for others of us, it might be a situation like a colleague or a friend who regularly takes the name of Jesus is a curse word. You find yourself uncomfortable about it, but you're not sure whether you have the strength to confront the issue or do the right thing. And I know that many of us face extremely complex family situations surrounding our faith as well. I know there's some in fellowship who find themselves struggling to know what is the balance between standing on the truth of God's words and keeping peace with loved ones in the home. 
Well, Jonathan was in a real predicament this morning in our passage, perhaps worse than even those that I've uh, come across, certainly more stressful. Saul wants to have him kill his friend, David. He has an obligation to his father to honour him, of course. He also has an obligation to Saul as his king. To go against the king in any matter for an ordinary person would be considered treason. Saul should have been under God's law like everyone else. But kings at that time, as you see in God's word and in secular places, of course, were often alone to themselves. And to even question their decisions would have been extremely dangerous. It's not out of the realms of possibility with Saul in this clearly unhinged state that if Jonathan's life could be at risk by openly taking David's side in this. Certainly his status as heir to the throne would have been in peril. But Jonathan also has an obligation to his friend, David. He's made a covenant with him and we know that he has this great love for him from everything we've read already. So what are his options in the passage? Well, Jonathan could prioritize his duties to the king and carry out this order to take David's life. And you may think the same as me, that that doesn't seem very likely from everything we know about him. It would be out of character. We know that Jonathan cares for David and perhaps we're right not to expect him to do that. Moreover, where his conscience is involved, he knows that this is unjustified taking of life directly in conflict with uh, God's command, thou shalt not murder. But there is a milder option open to Jonathan as trying to think about what he could do, which would be allowing him to wash his hands of this situation. It's a response that we might know in some of our personal circumstances and lives. Jonathan could do nothing if he wanted to. What's clear from verse 1 is that Jonathan isn't the only one who gets this command from his father. The call to take David's life goes also to Saul's servants as well. And from what we see later in this passage, the servants are quite happy to do whatever Saul wants. They'll take the easy option over taking a stand on what God says is right. So at the risk of standing up and saying something when Saul could very easily turn on him, it would seem sensible for Jonathan just to wash his hands of the situation and take a step back and let the rest of them take care of it. If he did that, he wouldn't be guilty, of course, of the murder. His relationship to his father would be intact. His position in the kingdom would be preserved. And perhaps he could square it with his conscience as a sensible move. Another secret op a similar option would be that he could secretly go and warn David about this and then carry on as normal. Now, if I was looking honestly at this, maybe I'm a bit of a coward. I was thinking this is what I would do. If I was in his shoes, I could secretly tell David that this is what's going on and then not tell anybody else about it. And nobody would know that it was thanks to me. Jonathan would get away with it. Saul would be none the wiser and nobody would have any blood on their hands. It would be no risk and a really easy win. But what do we see Jonathan do? None of these things. He not only warns David, but he also speaks up to the king in our passage. He says those words, let not the king do wrong to his servant David he's not wronged you and what he has done has benefited you greatly he took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine the Lord won a great victory for all Israel and you saw it and were glad why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason I was just thinking what a brave man he is doing that there was a commentary that explored this really well it said Jonathan speaking well of David is really the sense of the ninth commandment not only that we shouldn't slander or lie against others, but that we should witness for them and stand in their defense when we know that they've been wrongly accused. A man may wrong another as well by silence as by slander when he knows him to be falsely accused. 
And Jonathan's actions, we see, really line up, don't they, with God's standard of justice. It's not enough to just avoid doing what's wrong. But we ought to see the spirit of the law and stand in the defense of someone who's wrongly accused. Jonathan could have seen David murdered with his silence, but he chose to vindicate him publicly instead. And anything could have happened at that point when he did that. If, I was thinking if this scene was to be put on the big screen, maybe if it was to be uh, cinemized, whatever the right word is for that, perhaps there'd be a long and an intense close-up of Saul's face when he hears these powerful words as he wrestles with what's the right to do. Why then would you do it wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And it's clear that in his sound mind, Saul knows that Jonathan's right. But that doesn't rule out the possibility given the way he's failing at the moment, of taking action against the both of them for displeasing the king. In the end, we're told that Saul listens, and he says, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now, regardless of whether this change is temporary or permanent, we see that speaking the truth and demanding justice can prick the conscience of a sinful person. With the truth laid so bare before him, even with all of his hatred and his jealousy in his heart, Saul acknowledged in that moment that the right thing to do was relent. And we see in verses 8 to 10 that David continued, at least for a time in his service in the military and in Saul's court. Some time passed in relative peace before the things all kind of go wrong again. So what do we take from these first verses today? I try to apply that basic predicament that Jonathan faces to the complex situations we might find ourselves in today. It's quite easy for us and certainly quite easy for me to think of all the moral decisions that people face in the Bible as like really simple black and white issues and then excuse myself today by thinking that well, my work complex world is a bit more grey than that. It's more difficult for me to know what to do. And yet, when I read the words of Jesus, when I study the Old and the New Testament, it's actually plainly obvious that the world is only ever as morally complex as it has been in the past. Our world might be packaged differently today, it might look different, it might have different customs, but fundamentally, I believe the truth is still the truth in God's words. And uh, it struck us as Jack so eloquently points out so often, the word of God is the foundation really for this world and what's right and wrong. The writer of Ecclesiastes, possibly David's son Solomon, recognized the unchanging nature of our world with these words. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So you and I, like everyone before us, like those living right here in Samuel's times, like Jonathan himself, will be placed in complex dilemmas and situations. And I believe that we, like Jonathan, we can choose to openly do what is wrong, to openly do what is right, or perhaps take that grey road and do nothing. Perhaps in the workplace, we find it easy to quietly go along with that celebration or that cause that makes us uncomfortable because it's not as remotely as uncomfortable as speaking about our concerns for following God's words. With that colleague or that friend who regularly takes the name of Jesus as a curse word, perhaps we try to balance out our obligation to be nice to them against lovingly sharing with them that Jesus' name is the name above all names. It's an awful lot easier to do nothing, and I know that myself because I've certainly been there 
myself as well. Family situations too are so challenging for us, trying to be wise, trying to balance our those loving relationships with the necessary call of Jesus to follow him first, even if it means forsaking all others for the kingdom. Well, this point is not meant to browbeat anybody uh, into guilt and shame or even to give specific advice into situations you've got going on, but just to simply take note of Jonathan's example. He had all of those options on the table and he put himself at risk to do what he knew was right. And so his priority honored the Lord God and his words. Everything else, including his personal welfare, was ignored in our passage. Now today, thanks to the New Testament and the fullness of the Bible that we have in front of us, I believe that we've actually got more than Jonathan had to work with. We're so blessed to not only have the laws that Jonathan would have considered in his decision-making, but we have the lived testimony in the revealed word of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. And Jesus got to the heart of the law, things that we've been considering on a Sunday evening in the Sermon on the Mount. And he shed light on what it really means for us to live like this dearly. And as we study the words of Jesus and we soak up his example alongside them, we should expect really to be better equipped for the difficult decisions that we might have to face each day. It could have cost Jonathan everything, this passage. And praise God, it didn't. Sometimes we too are immediately blessed when we take a stand on God's word. We see his goodness sometimes shining through in those moments. But at other times it does cost. But Jesus says that it's worth counting the cost and following him and considering him a worthy price. So just to illustrate this before we turn to the second chunk, perhaps you'd like to look with me at uh, Luke chapter 14 um, at a few words of Jesus that maybe speak into our practical situations today. Luke chapter 14, and in verse 25, Jesus turns to the crowds following him. This section of scripture is often titled, The Cost of Being a Disciple. It says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And I'm skipping on to verse 33. It says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And I hope that just brings some clarity to just the example that Jonathan set this morning and maybe how we stretch that thread to our lives today. Jesus is not calling us simply to hate people around us. It's not what he called for at any time. But what he means is consider Jesus the most precious, the most important focus in our lives. To follow him and be prepared to do whatever he calls for, whatever is right, knowing that it is costly to live like that. Jonathan, no doubt, weighed up his options and he opted to do what was right in the Lord's eyes. How much more motivation is there for us with the revealed testimony of the Lord Jesus following him to respond in love in our dilemmas and problems. I'll leave that part there. We'll study the second chunk of our passage. This is verses 11 uh, on. It says this. 
Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat hair. Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michal told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied to him. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He laid naked all that day and night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, this is where we get into the real weeds of some unusual events. Now, I've kind of put a key statement on this to tie it all hopefully together on this unusual uh, behavior in the passage, which is God's plans stand. And I think in the moral and the political chaos of this chapter, if there was one key truth to bring out, that that would be it. No matter what's going on, God's plans stand in this passage, and I believe in our lives as well. His purposes will be achieved, even when the rest of it seems wildly out of control. Now, all of this comes after Saul has been troubled by a distressing spirit, and it's worth touching on this because it does fit in, I believe, with that key point that God's plans stand, that he's in control. Why did God send this evil or distressing spirit, depending on your translation, upon Saul? couple of thoughts. Firstly, God's hand is always involved in restraining evil in our worlds. Without his common grace, without his given sense of what's right and wrong to us in our consciences, maybe we can scarcely, scarcely imagine what kind of world we might live in. However, in this instance, it seems God removes his hand and allows this evil spirit to torment Saul. It's clear that these episodes that he experiences are temporary and that this spirit would leave. What purpose does it serve? Well, let's not forget that this harassment of Saul was the reason that David was brought into his household to play music in the first place. It seems that through Saul's wickedness, somehow God's purposes were still being achieved by letting these episodes happen. And it's also clear that by withdrawing his own presence from Saul, that God was showing Saul the reality of his own wicked decisions. Saul would be without excuse to not repent and seek him afresh. And it's maybe just a window into an answer there as to why this spirit comes to trouble Saul. And I'm happy to chat more about that afterwards. 
But in the rest of our passage, what we really see again is that God has plans for David and he is in control, even though the rest of it looks like chaos. So in verse seven, sorry, verse 11, Saul sends his attendants to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, who we need to remember is both David's wife and Saul's daughter, like Jonathan, she puts David first initially. It's an interesting episode that she puts an idol in the bed. It had a lot of questions in my mind straight from that. Where'd she get that from? I was thinking, this is absolutely forbidden to have a household idol like this. But it's interesting because it does connect the dots to some events in 2 Samuel, which I won't go into detail in. But this same wife comes to despise her husband in 2 Samuel. We're told that when David dances before the Ark of the Covenant and it comes up to Jerusalem, she resents the sight uh, later in her life. So perhaps we can conclude that over time, she comes to prefer her idols to worship in the living God. I don't have time to go into all of that. But what is clear is, whatever her motives are here, her actions are quite brave and they buy David some time. Again, we find out that God will not allow David's life to be taken and so he escapes. Where she differs from Jonathan is in her honesty. See, while Jonathan helped David and reported well of him, Michal saves him with her plan and then says to Saul about him, he said to us, let me get away. Why should I kill you? And if you've been reading carefully, you'll notice that that's not true. Michal clearly wanted to protect David and she also wanted to keep her father on side. We could say she takes that gray murky option we were talking about before. So she lies and says that really David threatened to kill her if she didn't do this. And you can understand it, why she would say that. But there is a stark contrast with the example of Jonathan. She certainly isn't as careful with David's reputation as she is with his life. But I believe God's plans stand and he escapes. And we see David flee to Samuel at Ramah to tell these events to him in verse 18, which is where our key point is perhaps most clearly demonstrated. What's happening here? Word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah. That's verse 19 and 20 here. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the spirit of, Saul, uh, sorry, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Now, it's such a curious incident. Now, just to define what prophesied means here and what it doesn't mean, I know Saul touched... Uh, keep mixing up Saul and Paul's names. Paul touched on this last time out. This prophesying does not indicate that they all predicted the future. It can mean that, but it's not necessary. Rather, the Hebrew word simply indicates speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. We don't know what was said exactly, but it's likely that in this case they gave spontaneous and inspired praise to God. It isn't indicating that these men were in any way kind of possessed. Rather, they were inspired and moved by a powerful experience of God in that moment. So much so that they couldn't help but to speak out. This is an unusual work of the Spirit to come on people who weren't seeking him. It's clear, I think, why God acts miraculously in this way for a couple of reasons. Two purposes are achieved. Firstly, his name is glorified publicly. And secondly, his servant David is protected. These are God's plans and they're not going to go wrong. No matter what control Saul still thought he had over David's life, he was utterly disarmed by this. And soon enough, the message gets back to him. Will he take note of the message? As one commentary puts it, 
maybe this should be interpreted as God saying by his spirit to Saul, instead of seeking your own selfish desires, you should seek to be filled with the spirit of God. That would be wise counsel to anyone and everyone today as well. But Saul sees this and then continually, blindly goes on with his plans. Saul was told about it, we're told, and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? You can kind of feel his frustration building, can't you, as these messages come back. Finally, Saul comes and of course, even he, we're told in the passage, experiences the spirit and prophesies as well. What's the clear message leaping out of that? Well, I believe that Saul's getting this clear message that God is sovereign, God is in charge, and even you, Saul, even the king, even you with all of your men, with all of your power, with all of your status, you can't thwart the plans of the living God in David's life. And Saul is further humbled, of course, as this king, in his inspired state here, removes his garments and appears Naked, says the passage. Now in the Hebrew, this can indicate undergarments. And um, for Saul's sake, maybe we can hope that that was the case. But for sure, his royal garments, all of his prestige and his dignity is being cast aside. I don't think that's an accident. The question at the end, is Saul also among the prophets, tells us at least one thing clearly. A person can be affected by the power of God without being surrendered to the power of God. That makes sense. To put it another way, maybe Saul could be absolutely under the authority and divine plan of God in his life without willingly bowing the knee to him. But God's plans stand. How poignant a thought that might be for our uh, secular world today and the powers that maybe we often forget are still under God's sovereign authority. So just to consider then before we conclude, really the contrast between Saul's plans man's plans and the Lord's plans in this passage. Consider how determined Saul is in this passage to do evil. How quickly that positive outcome of Jonathan's stand disappeared. It seems Saul, having done the right thing for a moment, wavered and broke his oath in just a moment. His conviction for doing what God says is right was only surface deep, so he wasn't prepared for spiritual attack. And pretty soon, he found an opportunity to sin was close at hand. How many of us trip up under similar circumstances in our lives? And yet God wasn't for a moment thwarted by Saul's waywardness. It seems the Lord's neither surprised nor panicked by the plans of mankind. He preserves his plans in spite of the chaos of Saul's and mankind's sinful nature. And so you and I are called to decide a little bit like Saul in our passage. Will you bow the knee willingly, bring in permanent change and joy to your life? Or will you have it your own way like Saul and bow the knee when it's too late? Either way, God's plans will stand. And we've repeated that for refrain over and over. But before we close, just a thought about why those plans were so important, because this certainly uh, inspired us as I was thinking about why did those plans of God in this passage need to stand? so that these such drastic things would have to happen to thwart what Saul had in mind. Now, I love it when my study Bible has sections called Christ in the Scriptures. And it's so important where we can to draw those threads, those lines and dots from the Old Testament and point forward to Jesus coming. And that's so especially clear often around the life of David, of course. 
And I was thinking about all these events where David's been really inches from death. And what is the most likely moment that David could have died in human circumstances? Probably when Saul and David were alone. One is armed with a spear and the other's defenseless. This looks like impossible odds, doesn't it, for David to get away? And yet he escapes Saul more than once in our passage. Now, how big is our view of God's sovereignty in this passage? Here we are in a moment when it, we could quite easily glance over it as obscure history. And yet in it is contained David, from whom one day would come the Lord Jesus about a thousand years later. Now, isn't it amazing that the line of Jesus in this passage is, physically speaking, inches away from being destroyed by this spear and all of Saul's schemes. If that spear had been a yard this way or a yard that way, then the Messiah's family tree was finished. But realistically, there was absolutely no chance of that happening while the Lord was with David, was there? And we've seen clearly that somehow, even in our decisions and even in our sinful choices, God is still governing in the world. His plans will prosper and his plans will stand. So it wasn't Saul nor his spear, nor his servants, or anything else that he could have devised in all creation that would see the Messiah's line destroyed in our passage. And so I hold that we absolutely ought to believe as truth today that God does have a plan and a purpose still in our worlds. It's easy in our bleak circumstances to lose sight of that a little bit, and it seems hopeless, and maybe David felt at times that fear as well. But to remember that God is in control. Ultimately, we don't have promises for short-term happiness or an easy life, but we do have promises, I believe, that Jesus will come again and that he prepares a place for us. And God's plans will stand for each one of us as well. So as we conclude this morning, I hope there's been something of a challenge, something of an encouragement in the passage. Be challenged to reflect maybe on the, the complex situations you face going into the week. Consider where you stand on your obligations like Jonathan did. Am I going to the mission field around me to pay lip service to Jesus? Or am I willing to follow his calling, even if that has difficult consequences? Maybe let's be uh, encouraged to keep Jonathan's example in mind and not be tempted to go half in for the truth. And then I've repeated the words, God's plan stand like 50 times or something like that in our second point. But I hope it's clear and I hope that we can draw the dots to our own life to see that it's still true. I find it really easy to grasp that intellectually as I read the Bible. It's very easy to read the words and see that teaching coming through and even to explain like this morning how it's true to others in the scriptures. But do I go out into the world and then lean entirely on the Lord as if it's true every day? Do I put into practice a confidence that God is in sovereign control in my working life, my family life, my church family life or sickness or fears or whatever else might be going on. Perhaps there's a challenge in that true as, uh, too as we try to let our daily living catch up with what we know is true in our heads. Now, as we close, there is a fan fascinating link to the Psalms in our chapter. And if you might like to turn with me to Psalm 59, just to close with and uh, consider this maybe a good place to go back and reflect later on. Psalm 59 is prefaced by these words. It gives us a little bit of context as to where it comes from. And it starts with this at the beginning. For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David, a miktam. And then it says, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. I believe that's a, a really clear link 
to our passage this morning from 1 Samuel 19. So this psalm is written by David about the very events that we've just studied. And um, I don't have plans to expound the psalm, but maybe just to read it through together as a bit of a reflection to see David's confidence in the midst of all the chaos he's got going on. I'll just read it through together. It says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. And this bit, I think you can really imagine from the passage, says they return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl around the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Well, what faith. It says, my God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot them and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. And I think we might add there, we might say that, then let it be known on the earth that God's plans stand. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. Amen. Now, present times, just as a final thought, when we feel overwhelmed, can we echo that with David in that prayer? Just to think that last refrain and maybe take it with you this morning. His clear declarations that God is in control and maybe make this our prayer as we close too. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just in these glimpses into David's life and also the commentary that he gives us in the Psalms of these experiences, Lord, the way that you strengthen him to face sometimes terrifying circumstances, things that maybe go way beyond um, some of the things that I face in my life and the things that I take as fears and concerns and anxieties. Pray, Lord, that you might help those of us here this morning who know you to put these things before your throne each day, Lord, to bring our lives, the things that concern us, the complex situations that you place us in before you and be willing to count the cost of following the Lord Jesus' example, following his words and knowing that it's, much, it's so worth it, that you are a worthy cause. And I pray, Lord, that you might speak to us, that you might help us to, in these daily circumstances, to bring glory and honor to you. Help us to have the security that David had knowing that you are a fortress in our lives and God whom, on whom we can be rely on. And I pray, Lord, that you might strengthen us to our tasks this week. Help us to go rejoicing in the great things that you've done in our lives. 
as we come to your uh, table, Lord, now I pray that you might speak to us, Lord, that perhaps there's a, a great way of motivating us, Lord, as we partake of this uh, time together, this fellowship and this spiritual meal. pray that you might encourage us and remind us again of the great cost that you paid for us, that we might consider it the greatest honor of our lives to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. I ask this in Jesus' name.